0: Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. As you're uh, turning your Bibles there, uh, I just want to say a thank you to uh, all of you who filled out a survey. We had those a few weeks ago, um, and we had around 140 uh, surveys that were submitted, and we are thankful for those. And uh, those surveys, what they're helping us do is identify some areas of opportunity and and areas for improvement. Uh, We want to be a church that is for our community. We want to improve fulfilling our mission here at Bachelor Creek of making and growing disciples of Jesus. And sometimes we can't see what you can see. We are the body of Christ. And so uh, those responses are going to help us uh, as we filter through those, as we process through those. uh, We're going to be developing some next steps. And uh, we're going to be excited to share some of those next steps in January. We're going to have a vision night, uh, just like we did at the beginning of this year. And uh, once that date is set, we will communicate that with you. And uh, we hope that uh, you'll make plans to be there as we share what are we going to do and how can we be more effective at making and growing disciples of Jesus, Uh, because that is what it's all about. So Revelation chapter 2 is uh, where we're going to be today. Do you ever think about how the content of a single letter can change someone's life forever. Maybe you, you run home from school and uh, you, you open up the mailbox and, and you look at that, that letter from your dream college, wondering if it's a letter of acceptance or a letter of rejection. Uh, maybe it's a, a defendant standing trial, waiting anxiously for the verdict to be read, guilty or not guilty. The other envelopes that, that we open up in the mailbox may not be that significant. Right? I think most of the time you, you open it up and, and there's just a bunch of, a bunch of junk mail. There's, there's ads, there's, there's a library bill, uh, overdue, OK. Um, you know, you've got uh, letters from, from friends and family and just a lot of junk mail that, that gets tossed away in the trash. But occasionally you'll, you'll open up something that causes you to stop and stare. May, maybe it's a letter from an old friend. Maybe it's a job offer from a prestigious company. Uh, maybe it's, it's a package, right? It's an Amazon package that we've been waiting for. But, but it could be, a, it could be a, a, a thank you card. It could be a, a birthday card from, from a family member. We open up those letters with a sense of anticipation and sometimes excitement. So I can only imagine the anticipation and the excitement when the church at Thyatira receives a letter from a mail carrier, and they look at the letter, and on it, it is signed and sealed by Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that would be like? We're in a series called uh, Seven Words. We're looking at the seven letters of the seven churches in Revelation, and uh, last week we looked at two churches, Smyrna and Pergamum. Now, a first century mailman would have gone from from Pergamum and he would have traveled 30 to 40 miles southeast to Thyatira. He would have traveled along the imperial post road. This city was located in the middle of a valley, so it was not naturally fortified, though there was a military outpost there. Now, they were designed to defend Thyatira. All they wanted to do was delay any invaders from going to Pergamum so that Pergamum could have enough time to uh, prepare for the uh, upcoming attacks. Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities that Jesus writes to. But despite its tiny population, Jesus sent his longest letter to this church. And while Thyatira may not have been a large city, it was a thriving city. Because it was located along some major trade routes. And it became a prosperous commercial center. It was a, a center of manufacturing and merchants. There were carpenters, dyers, sellers of goods, tanners, weavers, tent makers. They were all making a living from their trade. There were merchants in wool, linen, apparel, leatherwork, and excellent bronze work. So unlike the other large cities that Jesus has addressed so far, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, The people at at Thyatira was kind of a a typical small town with blue-collar manufacturing. These were working-class folks that were known for their trade guilds, which were kind of like early labor unions. And the people there weren't super religious. Uh, The church at Thyatira wasn't persecuted like the other churches that we've looked at so far because the people at Thyatira, they didn't really care what you worshipped. They weren't really into all that religious stuff. They were too busy working hard and playing hard. And boy, did they play hard. Each of these trade guilds would regularly have meetings. And the meetings would go a little bit like this. They'd spend a little bit of time uh, paying tribute to to the pagan god of their guild. Then they'd spend a little bit of time talking business. And then they would spend a lot of time drinking and partying. And the partying would always include Sexual immorality. So that's where the church at Thyatira, that's where they ran into some problems. Because in order to work in Thyatira, you had to be a member of the trade guild. And you had to participate in these meetings. Now, the right thing for the believers to do there would be to sacrifice their personal comfort for the sake of Jesus and refuse to participate in these pagan guilds and refuse to engage in their immoral practices. But of course, that would mean that they wouldn't be able to work a trade. So that's what's going on when the church at Thyatira receives this letter. Let's read what Jesus says to them. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 18. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If you look at verse 18, what I want you to notice first of all is Christ's credentials. Each of the letters to the churches in Revelation begin with credentials. It's a description of the qualities about Jesus that demonstrate why these letters carry authority and why the readers ought to pay attention. In verse 18, it says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Here for the first and only time in the book of Revelation, we see the title Son of God. Now there are a lot of skeptics who say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. But here in Revelation, we see that very clearly. He also describes himself as having eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. Do you remember back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? This is the same description that John gave. Jesus' blazing eyes means that He sees through the facades, the mask that we wear, the disguises, and he gets right to the heart. There's no secrets from Jesus. He sees everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows it all. His feet, like burnished bronze, symbolize his strength, his staying power. In other words, Jesus isn't going anywhere. So Jesus presents himself to this church as the one true Son of Almighty God who comes in judgment as he looks into the lives of his people. Notice second in verse 19, Jesus gives compliments to the church. He he commends the church. He, He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. He compliments them in four areas. First, their love. Now, this isn't any kind of love, okay? It's not a, I love the cults or I love pizza. It's it's agape love. It's a a selfless love, an all-giving love, a love that loves no matter what's in it for me. This is the kind of love that can only be put in your heart by Christ, produced by the Holy Spirit. So it's obvious from Jesus' words here that the church in Thyatira, they love God. They loved each other. They loved their neighbors. Then he compliments their faith. This isn't just a a believing faith. It's the idea of faithfulness. It's a perseverance that overcomes. It's the highest form of loyalty. So they were growing in their faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit, and that in turn enabled them to face the many pressures they face daily in the trade guilds, their business pressures, their social contacts. Then he compliments their service. St. Augustine said, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. And then he compliments their perseverance. The perseverance comes from the faith that that God is in control and he's coming again. It's not this resignation that, oh, whatever happens, I I just we we might as well accept it, might as well just live with it. No. It's this belief that God is in control no matter what. And then notice that, that Jesus says, You are now doing more than you did at first. They're growing. Remember how the church in Ephesus was criticized for losing their first love? You know, often as as time goes by, it can be easy to lose our passion for serving God. But that wasn't the case here. They kept getting better and better. That's a good reminder that Christianity isn't supposed to be stagnant. It's supposed to be vibrant and exciting. It's supposed to get better and better. It's supposed to be about growth, about sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. So let me just stop and ask, could that be said about you? Would Jesus say, I can see your constant improvement in all these areas of your life? Or did you become a Christian and and you grew for a little bit and then you just kind of flatlined? You just kind of became stagnant. There's not a single person here in this room or watching online that has arrived. None of us have. You know, that's one of the reasons why we, we host a next experience here? It's because every single one of us has a next step to take. It doesn't matter if you're just exploring faith or you're brand new to faith or you've been following Jesus for 50 or 60 years, none of us have arrived. So if you've not gone through the next experience, I just wanna encourage you to sign up for that and find out how you can continue to grow. When it comes to, to faith being stagnant, a lot of times people will, will say to the pastor, well, I'm just not getting fed. You heard that before? I'm just not getting fed. And you know what I would say? It's time to get your own fork. Like, can you imagine if you only ate food on Sunday? <laughs> You'd get pretty hungry, wouldn't you? but we need to eat daily, and we need to feed our spirit daily, feasting on God's word. The word of God is like milk helping us grow. It's like meat challenging the mature Christian. It's sweet like honey, it sustains like bread. So here you have a church that that had many people who loved God and served his people. They had faith in his word, they persevered, they helped many, and they kept growing. And as others got involved, the church began to grow. And so the deeds or the works of the church were far more when this letter was written than when it first began. You know that's how a church grows? So you look at this church and you're like, man, so far so good, right? Like this is the ideal church. They're they're knocking it out of the park. So what could go wrong? Well, you look at verse 20. And this is where this letter turns into like that that all caps text message you get with with five exclamation points. You're like, whoa, what's happening here? We, We see in verse 20, Jesus gives constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Just one person was corrupting the entire church in Thyatira. But That's all it takes. She's called Jezebel. That's probably not her real name, but everybody knew who he meant by the way he describes her. The church at Thyatira would have read this letter, and they said, Jezebel, we don't know a Jezebel. Oh, I know who he's talking about. Like today, somebody might be referred to as a Benedict Arnold. That's not their real name, but that title indicates something about that person. So here comes Jezebel in this church. Evidently, this was a woman who was a dominant and persuasive leader. The Jewish Christians in Thyatira would have recognized her name as being one of the most despised queens in Israel's history. The Old Testament Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. Her primary sin was leading the Israelites into worshiping Baal. Baal was a fertility god, and his worship involved immoral and perverted practices. There were male and female temple prostitutes associated with the worship of Baal. Now, Jezebel didn't care if people wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. She just didn't want them to worship God alone. And so when Ahab brought Jezebel to Israel, she brought her religion with her. She set up temples and altars to Baal, side-by-side altars to the God of Israel. And so many of the people who worshipped at the altar of the God of Israel also worshipped at the altar of Baal. And so in this way, she polluted and, and she compromised the people. And that is exactly what's happening to the church in Thyatira. They had love, faith, service, perseverance, but they had begun to tolerate and encourage this Jezebel. And she taught that you could serve God and you could do things contrary to his will. She taught that it was completely fine for Christians to indulge in sexual immorality and idolatry. Remember, we mentioned that Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. They were like the early equivalent of of modern-day labor unions. And so they represented different trades in the city. But they were much more than that. The guilds, they operated a lot like service clubs do today. You Think of like Kiwanis, Rotary, Lions Club. And it was very difficult for the blue-collar tradesmen to make a living unless they were a part of one of these guilds. Now, the way that they differed from trade unions was the way that they would worship these other gods. So each guild had its own particular guardian god, and as a member, you would be expected to attend all of its functions and participate in all of its activities, which included offerings and and feasts and oftentimes immoral behavior. For example, uh, the guilds would hold these banquets, and oftentimes it would happen inside the idol's temple. And they would begin and they would end with a formal sacrifice to the various gods. The meat that was served during the meals would have been offered to one of these gods. And if that wasn't bad enough, the meals often became an excuse for for drinking and other festivities, which were often public and very sexual in nature. And so it's not hard at all for us to imagine how challenging it would be to be both a Christian and a guild member in Thyatira. Here's the dilemma. The Christians in Thyatira were torn between making a living on one hand, which meant having to be a part of the guilds, and on the other hand, staying faithful to Christ. The question was, should Christians be involved in the guilds when doing so would require, at the bare minimum, attending these events? The other option would be not to join a guild, but that would mean that you would most likely face economic ruin because these organizations were so influential. There were other challenges too. Should they buy and sell from spiritually corrupt guilds? If they spoke out against the practices of these guilds, they risk economic, perhaps even physical persecution. The difficult decision for a Christian in Thyatira was how much of a pagan society should they accept and how much should they condemn? Maybe you've been in a position where you've had to decide between playing it safe and staying silent at work or speaking out and taking a stand for something that you believe in. It's not easy. Do you say something about the boss's unethical financial dealings? Do you... Participate in the inappropriate jokes and in the coarse language at work because you know it'll help you fit in? Do you work on Sundays knowing that you'll get that overtime pay? Or do you worship God with His church? These are thyatira questions. Is it possible to divide our life so that the sacred and the secular are separated? Can faith be a private matter and business a public one? As a Christian, what is my relationship to the world supposed to look like? I can tell you the answer is not total isolation and separation. Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we're not called to isolate ourselves in these little holy huddles, these little Christian communities. But the answer is not the other extreme either. The answer is not complete immersion with culture. Jesus calls us to be separate from the world. He says, do not love the world or the things of this world. So it's not complete and total isolation. It's not complete and total immersion. I believe the answer is found in holy influence. Holy influence. Where we are firm in our faith, set apart from the world and set apart to Jesus, and we enter into culture. Not naively, but fully aware, we discern and we seek the Spirit's guidance as we shine our light into the darkness. Jesus said in Matthew 5:14, "You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. We don't hide our light. We don't leave our light and join the darkness. We shine our light into the darkness. So here's this Jezebel. She's misleading the Christians to compromise. She's encouraging unholy living and impure activities. It's probable that she had begun to teach that it was completely fine to go along with the requirements of the guild that they needed to submit to the pressures of this world in order to make a living. God would understand. God would overlook that. Her philosophy was what you often hear today. Business is business. Hey, man, that's just the cost of doing business. If business practices collide with your Christian principles, then your principles have to go because you have to make a living. And this mentality of embracing the world plays out in every area of our lives. And churches aren't exempt from this either. There are a lot of churches in our country that are facing an identity crisis right now. Are we going to embrace the world or are we going to embrace the word? You see it when churches turn a blind eye to to sexual immorality, pornography, hypocrisy, you name it. But notice that the Lord holds the church responsible. His accusation is you tolerate that woman Jezebel. And so I read this text this week. And what I wrestled with was how does a church like Thyatira, a church that's praised for their growing love and faith and service and perseverance, how does a growing church and how do growing Christians today tolerate such destructive teaching?" How do we get to that place? I think it happens when charisma is valued over content and character. You know how we get wowed? We get so caught up in the way that someone says something and how they say it. We pay more attention to that than what it is they're actually saying. We think, wow, it sounds good, so it must be good. It sounds like it could be true, so it must be true. To to quote from the movie Tommy Boy, it's the the kind of people that could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves, you know? Do you know why scammers take advantage of others? Because they can. Last year, the Federal Trade Commission received 2.8 million reports of consumer fraud with losses totaling 5.8 billion dollars. Uh, Some of you might remember in the mid to late 90s, the the big scam was receiving an email from a Nigerian prince asking for money. I sincerely hope that none of you fell for that, but if you're a fan of The Office, you know that unfortunately Michael Scott did. Uh, There's an episode where uh, Toby says, didn't you lose a lot of money on that investment, the email? And Michael responds, you know what, Toby? When the son of the deposed king of Nigeria emails you directly asking for help, you help. His dad was the father of the country, okay? But all kidding aside, it's easy to let somebody's persuasive, charming charisma cover up their character and what it is that they're actually teaching. Another way that growing Christians can tolerate destructive teaching is when the truth is held, but it's not handed down. We hold on to the truth, but we're not handing down the truth. We're not not teaching and reinforcing and passing down the truth. We're just content to hold on to it ourselves. And this right here is why the next generation is so important to us here at Bachelor Creek. We believe that we have a very weighty responsibility to not just feel good because we have the truth, but we want to pass that down to the next generation. And that's why every single week our, our kids and our students are learning scripture. They're learning stories and principles from the Bible, and not just so they can fill up their heads with knowledge, but they have adults that are walking along beside of them and showing how that truth can impact their life every single day. John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And that's why this matters so much to us. In verse 24, notice that Jesus gives a clear command. He now addresses those in the church who weren't led astray. He tells them, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Master and Commander is a movie about a British warship in the early 1800s. In the film, there's a wordless exchange that takes place between an old sailor and a young recruit whom he's taken under his wing. The ship is going into battle. Men are scurrying everywhere on the deck. And as they do, the old sailor looks at this young recruit and he holds out his fist. And tattooed across his fist are two words hold fast. Hold fast. This scene is not just some Hollywood invention. Hold fast is a phrase that sailors have had tattooed on their knuckles for generations. The phrase traces back several centuries to when a sailor had to hold on to his assigned rope or his line during a storm or a battle. He knew that he had to hold fast to his line or all would be lost. And over the years, this phrase has taken on a wider meaning stay focused, don't get distracted, hold on to what matters, don't let go. And that is what Jesus is commanding the faithful believers in Thyatira. Be victorious. Don't give up. Because what happened to the church at Thyatira isn't limited to churches. Individuals can fall as far and as hard as an entire congregation. Where men and women who once accepted the authority of Christ and his word can begin to fall and they can begin to falter. And one sin leads to another and to another and to another, until finally, they're no different than the world. So today, take an evaluation of your life. Is there any difference between the way that you live and the way that your unsaved coworkers live? Is there any difference in the way that you talk, about the way you spend your money, about the way you treat your spouse? The teachings of Christ aren't just for Sunday morning, but for every moment of your life. Now, to those who are victorious, to those who aren't misled into false teaching, Christ shares two promises that I believe give us the confidence to hold on. Notice fifth, the Christian's confidence. We read it in verse 26. He says, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. First, he says that he will give them authority over the nations. God gave Christ authority over all the nations, and he says that he will give that same authority to the church, and we will reign with him. He's talking about the new creation. So you don't have to be worried about the world as it presses in on us. We know that we will rule and we will reign with Christ. And second, he says that he will give them the morning star. The morning star referred to Venus, which was the brightest star in the sky. But in the very last chapter of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, Christ is identified as the morning star. And so ultimately, we are given the greatest gift, Christ himself. Those who hold on to the truth will not only rule the nations, but we will possess the Lord of the nations. We will enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. The faithful are promised both rule and relationship with Jesus Christ, the morning star. And I just have to tell you, that invitation and that vision that Christ gives us of a coming kingdom, of a rule and a reign with him, that is such a greater motivation for holy living, then you better get your act together or else. You better clean things up. I'm telling you, what Jesus offers here, relationship, beauty, purpose, that is so much more compelling than fear. Do you realize that the greatest gift you can ever receive is Jesus Christ himself? See, you, you think a new job would make everything better. You think if I only had more money, if I, if I could only find a new hobby or, or, or a new group of friends, then things would get better. If I could only just get a clean bill of health, then everything would fall into place. Listen, when you have Christ, you have all that you need. So if you're here today and you don't have Christ, what is it that you're holding on to? What sin are you holding on to? Or rather, what sin is holding on to you? The invitation for you today is to let go of whatever that is and hold fast onto Christ. For those of you who are followers of Christ, who know Jesus the invitation to you is to hold fast to Christ and his teachings. Hold fast. Submit to him as your savior and your Lord. If he is your Lord, then you will follow what he commands. They're not burdensome. They allow allow you to experience the, the freedom, the full and abundant life that he desires for you to have. If he is Lord of your life, then he must be Lord of your education, your business practices, your social activities, your free time, everything. Hold fast. Hold fast so that you won't be led astray by false teaching that would lead you to tolerate and embrace sin. Hold fast. Hold fast so that you can live a holy life and you can impact and influence the world around you. Hold fast. And let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The invitation today is to hold fast. Let's pray. God, I pray today that we would be encouraged that you offer us something so compelling. You have offered us. Not just riches and not just reward and not just a freedom from pain and suffering, but God, you have offered us the gift of yourself. God, help us to realize that is all that we need. God, I pray that we would let go of whatever it is that is holding us back and we would hold fast onto you. That we would, we would grab a hold of you as, as Savior and Lord. God, if there's anybody here who needs to make that decision, to hold on to Jesus Christ. I pray today they would do that. And God, I pray that as as we hold on to you, we realize that, that you've been holding on to us all, all along. That is a free gift that you offer to us. God, I pray that, that we would be firm in our faith, unmoved, because we are holding on to the fountain of life, Jesus Christ in his name that we pray. Amen.